Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind men, saying, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind men said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to welcome you back to our series titled Following Jesus. And as we've been talking, we're walking through the Gospel of Mark in order to learn what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. And as we began this series over a year ago, I made it really clear that I have three goals for this series. There are three things I want to accomplish in every single message. Number one, my goal is to help people who do not know Christ to hear the gospel, believe, and put their faith in Jesus. Be it people who have never made a profession of faith, right, or or be it people who at one point in their life made a profession but never really actually experienced the change that comes with knowing God. People who might not have ever really been converted. My, My goal is to proclaim the truth of the gospel each week so that those who are not in Christ would would hear the truth and that they would repent and that they would believe the gospel and be saved. The second goal is to help people who do believe to, to grow. Part of the Christian life is growing. In fact, our mission statement says that, that we are here to help people to, to grow. Our mission statement actually declares that we are to create spiritually maturing Christ followers. We're not here just to help people have faith in Christ. We are help them to grow towards maturity, right? And we and, and we know, right, that growth comes through knowing more about God. As we said in our theology class, the more you know God, the more you love God. The more you love Him, the more you will grow. And then the third goal is has been to help people who are growing to take action. My goal is to mobilize our church family towards the mission that Christ has called all of us to participate in. You see, if you are a believer in Christ, Jesus calls you to actively follow him. Not just learn about him, not just think some thoughts about him, not just grow in your theological understanding of him. He calls you to actively follow him, to go where he goes, to go where he leads you, into his mission to save the lost. In fact, as we saw last week, Jesus did not come, he says, to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Timothy says, I mean, Paul says to Timothy, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the mission of Christ, and this is the mission that all of us who believe in him are called to be a part of. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Go, therefore and make disciples of all the nations, evangelizing the lost, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, getting them plugged into the local church, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, or disciple them so they can do the same thing. That is what we are all called to do. That is the mission we are called to. And one of my goals in this series is to help you, to mobilize you, to equip you for that mission so that you can be all in for the mission that Christ has for us. And so again, the goals have been to bring lost, the loss of faith in Christ, to help those in Christ grow, and to mobilize people to, to join this mission. Now, with that, this has been my approach every single week. Every week, these 
These goals are on my mind. And every week I seek to, to present the gospel. I seek to help people learn something new about Christ and to learn something new about their faith that they didn't know before so they can grow. And I seek to encourage you. I continually encourage you to take action based on the things that you are learning. Right? And, and, and this book of Matthew, Mark has been perfect for that. The Gospel of Mark is a fast-moving narrative that focuses on what Jesus does and how he treats people. And so it's perfect for learning about what it means to be involved in Christ's mission, to, to do what he does and follow him. And, and even though Mark is fast-moving, it is also theologically rich as we have seen. Right? There's a lot of theological truth that's packed in every section. And so it's a great way to learn more about Christ and our faith in him. And obviously this text is rich is a rich source of, of gospel truth. It's the gospel of Mark. And so it's easy to come back to the foundation of our faith, which is the gospel of grace and, and the call of Jesus to repent and believe that gospel. And so again, it's been my aim to incorporate these three goals in each message. Right? This text is rich material to meet all of these goals. And, and that's why sometimes, by the way, I have a tendency to go long, because there's a lot to talk about. Right? There's so much in each one of these sections to talk about. And, and every week I, you know, I move on to the next section realizing that there's probably still more that we could talk about. In fact, I probably could spend two or three weeks or more on every single section that we've covered to this point. In fact, I could probably do a sermon series on every little section you see in, in the book of Mark. But, but as I said early on, my aim is not to be like John Piper Right, who took six years to get through the book of Romans on Sunday morning. Six years. Right? I just can't even imagine that. I mean, I love the book of Romans, but six years. And I love the book of Mark, right? and I love more about it than now that I've been spending time in it, but, but six years. Right? I, I actually have more books that I want to get to in my lifetime. So my aim has been to then balance this, to balance walking through every section of Mark and, and addressing all three of these goals, but at the same time, not take six years to get it done. My aim is to be somewhat thorough on the one hand, but at the same time to actually get through the text before I turn 50. Right? By the way, we're actually on target to finish Mark January of next year, three months shy of my 50th birthday, by the way. So... So hopefully we can get there. Now, why do, why do I mention this? Well, as I've been studying this particular text and thinking about it and thinking about the goals of this series, and, and as I've looked over my notes that I've made for this text, I realize there's just too much here. When you look at these six verses, there's just too much in this one section to, to be covered in one week. There's too much to talk about with respect to the gospel. There is too much to talk about with respect to what it means to be a disciple. And there's too much to talk about with respect to theology. This text has so much to teach us that I'm just really compelled to slow down and, 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 and linger here in Jericho with Jesus and Bartimaeus and the crowd that's gathered there. So I, I beg your patience with, with that. Right, there's, there's so much here. And so we're going to spend the next couple of weeks unpacking this particular story because it has so much to teach us theologically. It has so much to teach us about what it means to follow Christ and, and be his disciple. And it has so much to teach us about the gospel itself. In fact, today, that's the part I want to focus on. I want to focus on what this story has to teach us as a church about the gospel. I don't know if you realize it, but this story right here, right, besides all the things it can teach us about being Christ-like and all the things it can teach us theologically, this story right here is actually one of the most beautiful and one of the most complete pictures of the gospel in the entire New Testament. It is one of the most complete pictures of the gospel narrative, the gospel of grace in the entire New Testament. What we see here in this encounter between Jesus and Bartimaeus is not simply a miracle of physical healing. We see the miracle of salvation. What we see in this text is exactly how a person can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In this one story, we see all the pieces of the gospel come together to bring new life to one who was hopelessly without it. And it begins with a picture of of our condition. It begins with a picture of our condition. 
The fact of the matter is, Bartimaeus was a real man in history, but his story itself is a metaphor for our lives. His blindness is an image of our condition. Notice it says in verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now what we need to realize is this particular story is the last of Jesus' healing miracles in the Gospel of Mark. He will not heal anybody else from this point forward. Everything else is moving towards the cross. Right? And we also need to remember that this story right here serves as the final bookend to a teaching section that has spanned chapters 8, 9, and 10. This is something important for us to keep in mind. Remember, Jesus' section, Jesus healed a blind man in the beginning. He heals a blind man first, and then... He, at the end of this, he heals Bartimaeus. And in between these two miracles is a section where Jesus is telling his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. He's plainly telling them what's going to happen, and they respond in ignorance. And then he tries to tell them about what greatness is in the kingdom of heaven, that real greatness is about service, and the apostles continue to struggle with what Jesus is clearly teaching them. He's, he's saying it as plainly as can be, and they don't understand. And the reason why they struggle is because of spiritual blindness. The physical blindness is a metaphor for their spiritual blindness. They are still partially spiritually blind. And, and, and these miracles in chapter 8 and 10 then serve to remind us of what our real problem is. You see, we, like the apostles, have been spiritually blind. We started there. This is the starting place of the gospel, by the way. It begins with the bad news that we are spiritually blind, that we are spiritually dead, as the New Testament tells us. We begin our lives physically alive, but spiritually dead inside. We begin our life physically able to see, but spiritually blind. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 12, we may indeed see... But we cannot perceive. Why? Because we're, we're blind. We were born into a world of darkness. It's all we have ever known. We were born with our eyes closed. We were born unable by ourselves to find our way to God. Bartimaeus is, is a picture of our old condition and the condition of those who are not yet in Christ. Those who reject the gospel are living in spiritual blindness and in darkness. Even those who claim to be Christians who refuse to repent of their sins and live in open rebellion to God, refusing to surrender to his lordship, they are just like Bartimaeus. They are completely blind. They cannot see the spiritual realities around them. They are just like Bartimaeus, except for one major difference. Bartimaeus, as Kent Hughes points out, was painfully aware of his condition. He knew that he was blind and in perpetual darkness. He knew what his problem is. He knew what his condition was. And he knew that it wasn't right. But many of those who are in, spiritually, in spiritual blindness often do not realize that they're blind. They don't realize that they cannot see the truth. They do not know that they have a problem. That is why... The gospel must always begin with the bad news. Because unless you're aware of the problem, you will never, ever look for the solution. As we said before, if you don't know the diagnosis, you won't take the medicine. This is why we use scriptures to show people who they really are. We have to show them that they're not good people who occasionally make mistakes. They are broken, depraved sinners who are under the condemnation and the wrath of God. This, by the way, is why I don't tell people when I'm witnessing to them that God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's why I don't personally like to force spiritual laws approach to the gospel. Some people do, but I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's helpful at all. Because the force spiritual laws starts with this statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, how wonderful is that? You know what happens when you tell an unregenerate sinner that God has a wonderful plan for their life? Really? Me too! I have a wonderful plan for my life too! I have a wonderful plan for my life and I, and I hope that God's wonderful plan for my life is the same as mine. And you say that God loves me? 
what a coincidence. I love me too. I can, I can really get on board with a God who loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life because I love me and have a wonderful plan for my own life. This doesn't help them understand who they are. This does not help them understand their condition. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute. The second spiritual law gives them the bad news. Really? Okay, well, it goes like this. Humanity is tainted by sin and therefore is separated from God. And as a result, we cannot know God's wonderful plan for our lives. Okay, so you mean to say that I can't personally know God's wonderful plan for my life because I'm tainted by sin. I'll just have to settle for my own wonderful plan for my own life. And hopefully it lines up with God's plan. I mean, you said he loves me, right? That's what you said. Telling someone that God has a wonderful plan for their life is, will not help them understand their condition. Their condition isn't the fact that they're ignorant of God's wonderful plan for their life. Their condition is the fact that they are ignorant of the wrath of God that is hanging over their head. Their problem isn't that, that they're simply tainted by sin. Their problem is that they're covered up completely by sin. It's in their very nature. Paul says we're by, very, by our nature children of wrath. He says that we are dead, not sick, dead in our sins and trespasses. They're not tainted by sin. They are sin. It's who they are. They are radically depraved, craving nothing but their own selfish and sinful desires. They, they, they are in open rebellion to a holy and righteous and just God who will hold them accountable. And his awesome and terrible wrath will be poured out upon them, not just for a moment, but forever, for eternity. They're not just spiritually blind. They are unaware of the fact that they're spiritually blind. At least Bartimaeus understood his condition. He knew that he was blind. And so the first part of the gospel is to make people aware of what the problem is. The problem is that they are sinners under the wrath and the judgment of God. And they won't understand that if we don't tell them that. As Paul says, how will they believe if they don't hear? We must tell them. Church, we must tell them. As lovingly and as graciously as we can. We don't need to be jerks about it for sure, but we need to tell them that they're sinners in rebellion to God, that we must unashamedly call sin what it is. Sin. Be it pride, be it, our, be it gossiping, be it greed or theft or idolatry, and all forms of sexual sin, which, by the way, is anything outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. And I say one man and one woman because there are those who claim to be Christians who now are in favor of the practice of polyamory. This bypassed polygamy altogether and just went right to polyamory. In fact, there's an article in, in Christianity Today where a Christian counselor talks about his and his wife's relationships with other people. I just, that sentence doesn't even fit inside my head very well. And he says that anyone that, that, that if everyone knows about it and if everyone is okay with it, then guess what? It's not sin. Brothers and sisters, yes, it is. It is still sin. And we must declare it as much. And we need to tell them that their problem isn't that they're, they're, they're not living right, a, a life of self-fulfillment. Their problem is that they're enemies with God. And that's all they ever have been. And the consequences of the rebellion they're going to be more catastrophic than, than their worst possible nightmares. And the clock is ticking. Because all of us have an appointment with God. We must make them aware of their condition. Bartimaeus is the picture that he was blind and he was aware of it. He knew it. He is the picture of our condition. But he also is a picture of our hopelessness without Christ. You see, we not only... Not only was he blind, and not only did he have to spend his life in perpetual darkness and in the worst form of poverty, he was completely helpless on his own to fix it. He couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't heal himself, and there wasn't another person in the entire world besides Christ that could help him either. There was nothing he could do. 
And this is the truth that we need to come to. It's one of the things that we must come face to face with about our condition is that is that we are utterly helpless to do anything about our own sin. You see, many people think when they finally understand that they are on the wrong side of God, they think, I need to get right with God. And they believe then what they need to do then is they need to do something to make themselves right with God. They think, well, I need to, be, I need to, to live a better life. I need to become a better person. I need to be more charitable. I need to try to, to do good things. I need to do, to do more good deeds than bad deeds. I just need to try harder and give more and be loving and doing all these things. And this goes for actually many people who claim to be Christians as well still. One of the Christians that I ask of people that reveals where, where, their, where their hearts are and what they really believe about salvation is the question, what must you do to be saved? You, you'd be surprised how many people I hear, I hear say, well, you just need to try to be a good person. You go to church and that's what you came with. You, you just need to stop sinning. You need to attend church regularly. You need to pray every day. You need to read your Bible. You need to work you know, for justice for those around you. That's what many people say is what it was required to be, to be saved. Now hear me, I want you to understand. You should work at being a better person. I mean, I think if you're a jerk, you should work on that. You should battle the sin inside of you. John Owen says, be killing sinner, be killing you. You should go to church. You need to be there. You should pray. You should read your Bible. You should stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. But hear me, none of that, not any of that, will save you. None of that will change the condition of who you are. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot do enough to overcome your sinful nature by your own actions. The uh, prophet Isaiah is very explicit in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All the good things that we can possibly do, all the best of our efforts, all of our righteous efforts, all the good deeds we can do is but filthy garbage in the sight of God. It's actually more graphic than that. If you want to know more about that, just ask one of the, the, the teenagers in the youth group. They have... Your best efforts have no power to make you better in the sight of God. Bartimaeus was more apt by himself, by his own efforts to overcome his blindness than we are to make ourselves clean in the sight of God. It's simply impossible. His life is the picture of the hopelessness and the helplessness we have apart from Christ. Notice then it says, and when he heard It was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This blind beggar sitting on the side of the road in hopes that someone may have enough compassion to give him just enough money so that he can sustain himself one more day. He's sitting there and he hears that Jesus is coming down the road. This Jesus that he's been hearing about, this Jesus that he's heard has healed many people, this Jesus that he's heard that has restored the sight of people that are blind, this Jesus is coming down the road. And what does he do? The only thing he can do, he cries out to Jesus. He cries out to him saying, have mercy on me. You see, Bartimaeus is the picture of how we are to come to Christ. We come to Christ helplessly dependent upon him. You see, all that we can do is cry out. He couldn't get up and go to him. He couldn't even find him. And he didn't have anything at all to give to him. He couldn't do anything for Jesus at all. The only thing he could do was what? Cry out. All he could do was cry out to Jesus. Now, Lord, have mercy on me. He was helplessly dependent upon Christ to respond to him. And again, by the way, this is the fulfillment of what Christ was saying in verse 15. Remember, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. We talked about this and what that means. This means that the only way into the kingdom is to be completely completely helplessly dependent upon Christ the way an infant child is completely and helplessly dependent upon his or her parents. The only thing that a baby can do when a baby is in need is what? 
cry out. That's it. And that's what Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus does. That's all that he can do. That's all that we can do is cry out to Jesus. He is helplessly dependent upon Christ to do the rest. Again, and that is the same for us. We are helplessly dependent upon Christ. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make God love us. We cannot earn his favor. We can't even find our own way to him. As the hymn writer puts it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless look, for, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There is nothing we can do except to cry out to Christ in desperation for his mercy. And sinner, if you've come to the place in your heart today where you become aware of your sin and you're helpless to do anything about it, I bid you then cry out to Jesus today. Cry out to him now. Jesus, have mercy on me. And here's the thing you need to understand. Don't stop crying out until he hears you. Notice it says in verse 48, and many people rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Here this blind man is, and he hears that Christ, the one who can heal him, is drawing near. And he does the one thing that he can do. He cries for help. And the crowd rebukes him. It says they tells him to be quiet, but really the force of, of the Greek means they were saying, shut up! You're embarrassing us. Now, I don't have time to deal with exactly why they told him to be quiet. right? But the point is, he wouldn't shut up. He kept crying out to Jesus. And what we see here, and what we have here, is another picture, right? but it's a picture of, of the persistent faith that is rewarded, the persistent faith that God rewards. One of the things that we have encountered throughout the Gospel of Mark are examples of people who are convinced that Jesus is the answer and they don't let anything get in the way of that. They don't let anything get in the way of them crying out to him. Remember the story of, of the paralytics and his friends. Right? They brought this man in a stretcher to where Jesus was because they knew, they believed that he could help they were convinced of it. They had faith in it. And when they arrived at Peter's house, they found that they couldn't even get inside. The house was filled all the way up, even to the door. People were standing outside. Now, did they say, well, I guess we'll have to wait our turn. Let's go home. No. They climbed up on the roof of Peter's house, and they began tearing the roof off the house. I don't know if I can say that dramatically enough. They began tearing the roof off of the house, and they didn't care if they were interrupting Jesus' sermon, and they didn't care that they were dropping dust and debris on the crowd below. Their faith prompted them to take dramatic, radical action. And what happened? Jesus rewarded their persistent faith. Jesus not only heals this man, but then forgives his sin, giving him salvation. And it's the same with the woman who sought to touch just the hem of his garment. It's the same with the, the, the man who begged Jesus to come and heal his daughter. It's the same, if you remember, with the Gentile woman who had a daughter who was demon-possessed, who cried out to Jesus, and Jesus ignored her, and she would not take no for an answer, and she kept coming after him, crying out to him. Jesus rewarded her persistent faith. And that is the kind of faith that we see here, and that is the kind of, of faith that we must have in Christ. It's a faith that doesn't give up. It is a faith that continues on. In fact, when Jesus began preaching his ministry, he declared what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what we need to remember is that both the words repent and believe are present tense imperative, active in the Greek. And what that means is Jesus isn't just saying you need to repeat and believe one time and that's it, but rather we need to continue repenting and continue in, in our believing. Or in other words, the time is now, the kingdom is here, be repenting and believing the gospel. Our faith is an ongoing, continuous action. We are continually to be believing no matter what happens. We're to have faith no matter what comes our way. So when the world says, Jesus can't save you, you continue to cry out to him. 
when your life and your circumstances scream at you and remind you how worthless you are, you continue to cry out to him. When those around you remind you that you don't deserve to be loved, that you do not deserve grace, and you do not deserve mercy, but you deserve the opposite of that, you just keep crying out to Jesus in faith. You let nothing get in the way of that. You let nothing keep you from crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. Refuse to be silenced by the enemy. That kind of faith is rewarded. Persistent faith is rewarded. And this is the picture of that. And and hear me, brothers and sisters. Jesus will respond to your faith. Notice what it says in verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Bartimaeus, who would not be silenced, kept crying out to Jesus, and Jesus hears him and stops, and he calls him. And what you have to understand is what's happening here, the context Jesus has spent three and a half years healing people, preaching the gospel, and now he is on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross. He is now focused because the end is near. In fact, if you remember, it says that he is the one leading the way. He is the one out front. He is the one marching towards Calvary to the fulfillment of the work that he has on earth, and he's within 15 miles of his objective. And he's surrounded by a huge crowd of people who are going with him, excitedly cheering him on, probably shouting, Hosanna. And he hears the voice above the crowd, this one man crying out to him. And he stops. And not only did he stop, he stops the entire crowd. He stops all of this exuberant activity. He stops what's going on. And says to him, says to them, call him. Brothers and sisters, that's the picture of God's mercy to us. Because Christ didn't have to stop. Christ was busy. Christ was on a mission. He didn't have to stop. And to be honest, this man didn't deserve for him to stop. Because he's a sinner like everyone else. But Jesus stopped anyway and had compassion on this man. And this is the thing that we need to understand. This is the thing that you need to hear, whether you are a believer or not. God is never too busy for you. God is never too busy for you. You can cry out to God anytime you want to. Because God always has time for you. Church, if you would just live in that truth, how would it change your world and your life? That God always has time for you. No matter what you are going through, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what time it is, God is never too busy for you. You can cry out to God and understand He hears your cry. God hears you. You ever feel like sometimes you're praying and your your prayers just bounce off the ceiling and they're not going anywhere? God hears you. He always has time for you. No matter what you're going through in your life, no matter what's happening to you, no matter how broken your heart is, no matter how worthless you may feel, lift up your voice to heaven and God will hear your cry. Why? Because our God is merciful. He is abounding in mercy. He is gracious. If you will turn to him in faith and you will cry out for mercy, he will hear you. And he will have mercy on you. If you repent and believe the gospel, he will heal you. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. God hears your cry and he is never, ever, under any circumstances, too busy for you. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you turn to God in your brokenness, if you will cry to him in your desperation, if you will call out to him in your time of need, he will hear you and he will be merciful to you. That's what we see here. And notice it says, And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Jesus stops everything and says, 
call him. And the attitude, I don't want you to notice, the attitude of the crowd changes. The crowd that, that once tried to shut this blind man up is now graciously encouraging him. I don't know if you, I don't know if that strikes you as funny, but it does me. One moment they're like, shut up, you worthless beggar. And the next they're like calling him going, hey, take heart. Be encouraged. Jesus is calling you. I don't want you to miss the importance of this, though. Even that detail can be a little bit of a distraction to this, this important point. The point is, this is actually a picture of the sovereignty of God. This man was blind and helpless. He could do nothing to help himself. All he could do was cry out to Jesus. And notice he could not even come to Christ until when? Until Christ called him. This is important. Christ had walked, had he walked on, there was nothing he could have done. Had Christ left him like he was, there was nothing he could have done. All he could do was helplessly cry out to Jesus, but it was Christ who was the one who called him. It is, it is Christ who bid him come. Please understand this. We cannot come to God unless he calls us. We cannot go to God on our own. We, we cannot track him down. We cannot reason our way to him through philosophy. We will not choose him by our own will. The only way we come to him is to be called. And when those people, when, and when people push back on this, I have to remind them of what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. The word draws literally means drags, by the way. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 65 says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite sections of all of Romans, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, the, of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way we can come to Christ, like this man, is by his call. Now even, even though we are called, we still must respond. Notice how this man did respond. It says, they said, take heart, Jesus is calling you, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. This is one of the verses I think is really easy for us to, to read and miss the important details. Because I don't know about you, I've read this many times, and the thing that I pay attention to is this man springing to his feet, coming to Jesus. I can imagine the joy that he felt, and that would be, you know, that's the picture that I, I see. But I miss the fact, and we will miss the fact if we don't pay attention, that he threw off his cloak and he left it behind. And this is important. Right? Because in, in, in first century, in the first century, a person's cloak was not just something to be cast aside lightly. It was a vital part of their life. If a person was caught out in the elements, it was their protection, literally their life-saving protection. A cloak was a shade for the sun, and it was a blanket to keep someone warm when it was cold. In fact, even according to Levitical law, if a person gave you their cloak as collateral, you had to give it back to them before sundown. Otherwise, they could freeze to death. That's the importance of a cloak. A cloak was an essential part of life. You had to have it. And a blind man would never put his cloak in a place he couldn't find it, and he would never be very far out of reach of his cloak where he couldn't easily feel around and find it. Because literally, to lose your cloak could be fatal. It could be a fatal mistake. To lose your cloak would just basically greatly increase a person's suffering. 
But notice when Jesus calls, what did he do? He threw one of the most important and valuable possessions he had. He threw it off and left it behind in order to come to Jesus. This is not accidental, by the way, because you contrast this with the story of the rich man a few verses earlier. Jesus says, give up your most valuable possession, which is your wealth, right, and come and follow me. And what does he do? He refuses. He walks away from Jesus. This blind man, in essence, gave up all that he had and left it behind him to come to Christ. This is a picture of our response to the call of Christ, and that is to be a response of total surrender. We must be willing to surrender all that we have and all that we hold dear in order to come to Christ. We must be willing to give it all up to come to him. Remember what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The call of faith, like the call to follow Jesus, must be answered with the willingness to surrender everything to him. Surrender your pride. Maybe even your dreams. Maybe even your plans for the future. Maybe your plans for a cush retirement. Maybe your ambitions, your idols, your possessions. Sometimes even relationships. Sometimes when Christ calls us to himself, he calls us out of relationships with the wrong people. Like illicit relationships, one of the most difficult things for people today to surrender in order to come to Christ are illicit relationships. People are willing to give up all kinds of things for Christ except maybe their favorite sin, especially sinful sexual relationships. People want Jesus, they just don't want to give up sleeping with the person they're sleeping with. In fact, I had a young man that I was counseling, he was talking to me about this, and He says, when you say to me that following Jesus means to turn away from my sin and stop sleeping around with whoever I want to sleep around with, then I just don't want to follow Jesus then. Because he's not worth giving that up to me. The call of Christ must be met willingly to surrender everything. Why? Well, Jesus says in Mark chapter 5, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? We must be willing to surrender everything in order to come to Christ because Christ is true life. He is eternal life. He is everything. What would it profit you to hold on to your sin? What would it profit you to hold on to your petty idols? What does it profit you to hold on to your wealth? Nothing. Even if you live the greatest possible life known to men, and you're the most blessed person that has ever lived in this entire world, it would profit you nothing because in the end you will lose it all, including your soul. But what does it profit you to willingly surrender it all to Christ? Everything. You gain everything. This man responds to Christ's call by leaving behind one of those most valuable possessions, and he willingly comes to Jesus. And then in verse 51 it says, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And I want you to understand, okay? this man's faith, like your faith, is important. But this man's faith was not a supernatural, magical, cosmic power that restored his sight. Let's, let's just get clear about that. His faith, like your faith, has no power of its own. Lots of people get confused about that. Lots of preachers are getting rich off of that. A lot of people misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. A lot of people overestimate the intrinsic power of faith. This man's faith, like your faith, has no power on its own. The power is not in your faith. The power is in the object of your faith. The power is in the object of his faith. It is not our faith that is powerful. The object of our faith is powerful, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who sovereignly went to Jericho. Christ is the one who stopped 
when the man cried out. Christ is the one who called the man forward. Christ is the one who healed this man. Without Christ, this man's faith is meaningless. Without Christ, your faith is pointless. That's why Jesus says your faith. So then why does he say your faith has made you well? Because the only part that we have in this whole thing is that. is to simply believe. We're to trust in Christ. We're to believe in him. That is the nature of saving faith. This man's faith is a picture of what saving faith looks like. It is simply turning to Christ and believing the promises that he gives and trusting fully in them. Christ is the one who does it all. Christ is the one who has all the power. All we do is simply turn and trust in that. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Is, is my preaching the power of God for salvation? No. The gospel is. Is a person's faith the power of God for salvation? No. The gospel is. For It's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in, in Jesus Christ. And we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. We're saved through faith, and even that is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Saving faith, like this man's faith that brought healing, is simply turning to the object of our faith and trusting and depending and hoping in him alone. And that is the kind of faith that we are to have in Christ. We acknowledge our condition. We acknowledge our hopelessness. And we respond to Christ's call and come to him in faith, trusting and believing that he will save us. And then notice it says, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Notice how his faith immediately led to action. He believed and he was healed or saved. By the way, the word that, that for healed or means saved, and Mark means it, this man also had eternal life. But he immediately began to do what? Follow Christ. That's the picture of us. Getting saved is not the end of the journey. That is not the primary end. It's actually just the beginning. Because the call isn't to just get saved. The call is what? To follow Christ. Remember, Christ said to his apostles, follow me. And even the Great Commission, he didn't say, go and, and help people get saved. It's not what he said. He said what? Go and make disciples, Christ followers of all the nations, and teach these people how to exercise their faith in me and follow me. Your faith should produce in you a desire to follow Christ and become more and more like him. And next week we're going to talk more about that with respect to this text, because there's a lot to learn how Jesus then loved this man and how we can learn from that example. But coming to faith in Christ is not about sitting around content with the fact that we're saved. It's, not, it's about following him. It's about going where he goes, going where he leads, no matter what the cost is. This man is healed and begins to follow Christ. Now there's one last thing I'm going to share with you from this text. But in order to do that, I'd like for you to do one thing for me. If you would just close your eyes. And just imagine that you're this man caught up in this world of darkness. And darkness is all you have ever known. And Jesus calls you to come forward and you're standing there with your heart racing. And all of your life, all you have ever seen, all you've ever known was darkness. All you've ever known was a world without light. And then in an instant, your eyes are open. And they're flooded with light. And as your eyes begin to adjust to that light, that overwhelming light, the first thing you see is the face of your Savior, the face of Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, that is the picture of our hope, our future hope in heaven. For those of us who are in Christ, you will close your eyes one last time. And you will shed the darkness of this world. And in a moment, you will open your eyes and you will come out of the darkness and into the light. And the first thing you will see is the face of your beloved Savior. That is our hope. That is what we're waiting for. The time when our eyes are fully open. The time when sin has no more sway over us. The time where there is no more pain or sorrow or blindness or cancer or depression or divorce or anything else or death. As the Bible says, the old things have passed away and we emerge into this brand new world in the presence of our Savior and our King. That's our hope. His experience is a picture of our hope. Now that we see that, once again, if I can impress upon you or ask of you to close your eyes one more time, but let's bow our heads. Because now the time is not to just hear, but to make a decision. Now that you've heard the gospel, you need to respond to it. You need to make a choice. Will I cry out to Jesus or I will be content to live in blindness? Will I surrender everything to him and come or will I cling to my sins and my idols? Will I come to Christ in faith or will I simply just allow him to pass me by? That is the choice before you. Choose to come out of the darkness and live in the light by faith or choose to continue to hold on to your old life and the darkness in your heart and the permanent darkness that awaits you. That's the choice. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.